This is the fourth official, and I'm your host, John Walker. Joining us this week is Livingston Assistant Manager Marvin Bartley. We discuss his playing career for non-league in England, all the way to Scottish Cup success with Hibs in 2016. We dive into his desire to become a top-level manager and the influence he throughout his career, such as Eddie Howe and Sean Dice, to name a few. We also, over the course of this podcast, discuss his important role within the SFA as their quality advisor, the importance of taking the knee, and the changes that he hopes to see in the coming seasons to help improve a rising issue around all forms of discrimination. If you enjoy this podcast, please share on social media to help us grow. I hope you enjoy. Martin Bartley, thanks very much for joining us. I guess kind of the timing couldn't be better um, if we had a, a planned time for you to join us. Just off the back of um, Livingston's upturn in form, I'd say, over the last four weeks. What do you think the turnaround's been been off of? Um, you know, I think we've, some points this season, you know, we've, we've lost games or, you know, we've drawn games that we probably should have won and we've lost games that we probably should have drawn. Um, I think the performances have always been okay. Um, I think at times they've been better than okay. Even during this kind of last four game runs, I think we've performed better and lost games. So it was just basically belief, you know, the boys kept on believing, kept on um, knowing what the process was and believing in the process and, you know, it's bared its fruit the last four games. Yeah, I felt that a little bit as well. I was I was at the first game in the season um, against Rangers and I think after maybe 15 minutes, I think Livingston probably nullified everything Rangers had to offer and I think what a lot of Rangers fans actually forgot leaving that day was we really imposed ourselves after you went down to 10 men for an injury and that's when yeah. we got the two late goals. Do you think the, the amount of new players that you had come in as well, taking time to bed in, it's just natural now that that's Livingston kind of taking on and this is what we should expect to see going forward? Yeah, but sometimes I think that's a bit of an excuse, you know, saying you've got new players in because as a coaching staff, we need to coach these players and make sure they're ready for the first game of the season. Um, if we don't think they are ready, then they, they shouldn't be playing kind of thing. But like talking about that game against Rangers, first one of the season, we said, you know, let's not concede from set play. You know, when you're playing against a big club like Rangers or Celtic, you say to yourself, right, you know, if they open you up or score from 25 yards or open you up and slide a through ball and then someone gets an end to it to score, then that's fair enough. But you can see from a set play, it really, really is heartbreaking. So, yeah, it's probably a learning curve for, for some of the boys who maybe have stepped up a few levels. Um, but, yeah, like you said, you know, we went down to 10 men and then it's game over at Ibrox. You've got no chance. <laughs> and we talked a wee bit before we started recording. You are now doing the coach. You're now primarily an assistant coach, really, this season, although you're still part of the playing squad. What... What is it you're enjoying most about the coaching? How much involvement do you have in the day-to-day? How much do you take off of David? And what is that relationship and partnership actually like on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, so my main job is to work with the defenders. You know, it's the defensive side of, of, of anything we kind of do. So, you know, for example, um, playing St Mirren on Saturday, um, I'll be looking at, you know, their attacking threats, how to kind of nullify their attacking threats, but also on the transition when we have the ball, how can we you know, startup attacks, you know, where are their weaknesses? Do they not press very well from the left or from the right? Does this player not press very well? What are their kind of triggers to press? Um, so for me, that's that's kind of my main job. I get some hands-on time uh, with the boys on a Thursday. Um, I do analyst work with them also um, on a Thursday or a Friday pre-game and then a Monday or Tuesday post-game. So, yeah, for me, that's kind of how it is. You know, Davey allows me to do that. Um, in terms of coaching, he's the predominant coach, so he'll take you know, majority of the sessions. Um, but as I said, I get a little bit of hands-on time, maybe 20 to 30 minutes uh, a week with the defenders and we work on, you know, what, what we have time to do during that time. What is that relationship like bouncing off of each other? Um, we, we seem to speak to a lot of coaches uh, or players that have then became coaches. 
whereby they do try and appoint someone that's almost the polar opposite of what they enjoy as a football side. Is that the the same idea, the same link up that you two have? Um, I'm not sure. You'd have to probably be better off yeah. answering that than me. Um, no, the relationship works really, really well. It's an honest relationship, you know. So I I tell the gaffer what I think, and then you know he tells me what he thinks. Um, and I think that's the best way. Do we always agree? No, definitely not. More like a married couple. <laughs> um, you know, we have a few squabbles at that end of the office, but you know we come out of it, and you understand what the other one's saying. And the gaffer has the you know final say on things. You know that that's his job. Um, you know, all I can do is advise him as an assistant the best I possibly can. Um, but yeah, no, listen, I, I love the coaching side. Genuinely, it's been, it's been brilliant. Um, it's slightly different, obviously, to, to, to the playing side, which I probably will speak about later, what the differences are. But no, the relationship's good. Well, kind of touching on that right there, actually. What is the what, what point in your career did you realise that you wanted to transition into coaching? Was it? playing under a specific coach that you really liked and really started to understand the game? Or was it as you were progressing to the end of your career that you decided that you kind of wanted to make sure there was something there? Yeah, no, I was around 24 years of age. Um, I remember having a conversation with Eddie Howe, who obviously the Newcastle manager now, but we were at Bournemouth at the time. Um, and he got a really real early injury in his career. You know, that basically, I think he retired three years later, but he yep. said he knew he was done. And he said to me, you know, you think about what you want to do next. And I'm sitting in the office, I'm thinking, I'm 24. What, what, what's this guy talking about? He, he looked even younger than me. Um, I was like, what are you talking about? Think about what we can do next. And, and it kind of, you know, I started to think about it after that conversation because I respected him so much. And I said, you know, what? I want to be a coach. I want to be a manager after this. So ever since then, you know, I've taken down notes of um, situations that we've kind of been in um, pre and post that conversation. So administration twice. Um, you know, starting on minus points, where I was at mentally as a player. And then I've actually gone back over the years and began to answer them now as a, as a coach last manager. Um, so it's given me, I think, a, a massive head start to first and foremost, you know, be in those situations. At the time, it wasn't great because I was putting on about 200 quid a week thinking, how am I going to get petrol to get to training or administration not being paid? But I knew how I felt mentally at that point. And did I have the right support from kind of the manager? And, you know, where was my head at when it came to coaching and taking on information? And, you know, I've now gone back and answered those questions. So it's really good for me to see both sides of it. I, I will touch on Eddie Howe because it was a question I wanted to ask. And it's probably a question you've been asked numerous times before, but I, I've never, wasn't able to find an answer on it. Was it obvious what he was going to become? I've listened to him on um, Graham Hunter's podcast and he seemed so clear-minded as to what he was going to achieve and how he was going to achieve it. And I think the Newcastle job is probably the right time. It seems like it's just aligned where he believed he was going to be getting to, to where he now gets the opportunity to go to. Was it obvious even then that he had that kind of analytical mindset and knew what he wanted to do and would be a successful coach? Yeah, he was, he was special. Um, you know, you knew it from, from the first day of him coming in as manager. He was, he was actually coach at Bournemouth when I first went in. So we had Kevin Bond, who was Harry Redknapp's assistant at various different places. And then Rob Newman was Kevin Bond's assistant, who I think now works at Manchester City as a you know, European scout, um, but had played for Norwich, etc. So Eddie used to take a lot of the young boys. We had this culture where he began to create, when he was a coach, if you're under the age of, say, 22, 23, would do extra sessions. And then what you saw, it was like a knock-on effect. Then the older boys began to join him because they wanted to better themselves as well. Um, so he, he did that. And then obviously Kevin Bond got sacked. We had a very experienced manager come in called Jimmy Quinn, um, who had managed at various different clubs, including Reading, which is my hometown. And without being disrespectful to him, when Eddie then came back as manager after him, it was a huge difference. And this is why now, you know, when people speak to me about experience and 
you know, coaches going for managers' jobs and saying, oh, well, they don't have the right experiences. I've had a manager there in Jimmy Quinn who was experienced, who had managed at four or five different clubs, you know, coached and managed a lot of games. And Eddie Howell, who was coming into it as a fresh-faced, you know, 34-year-old, into a team that were really struggling on uh, New Year's Day, I think it was, or the 2nd of January. And the difference between those two, not only the energy that Eddie had because it was his first job, you know, but like you said, analysing things. You know, we had no money really and begging people to go and watch games, begging for scout reports. He would work night and day to find out about your opponents. So if I was playing against you, for example, I would know everything about you, what your favourite term was. Obviously, knowing what footage you was was a basic one. What was your favourite pass? Who you looked to pass to the most? And that comes to him breaking things down and being, and I'll say it now, he's addicted to football. There's no doubt about it. He is addicted to football. So when people talk to me about experience, it means nothing in the game of football. Because if you're an experienced loser, if you go to various jobs, job to job, five, six, seven jobs, but you've never won anything or really achieved anything, what makes you better than the next young coach coming through? I, I think it makes you worse because you're clearly not learning from your experiences, but, you know, each to their own. Is that then another thing for you if we look at Tam Colts at Dundee United? Is that then a boost for you if, if and when you're ready to take that step to become a number one? Is that there is now clubs um, willing to take that plunge? Yeah, it's fantastic to see, you know, what Tam's doing. You know, he's gone into Dundee United when he first went in. People had a lot to say. Oh, it's a young coach. He's not going to get it right. He's not going to know what he's doing. Also got Foxy there, who was uh, assistant manager here, who's gone across there. Another fantastic young coach. So those two are working really, really well together. And I speak to Foxy, you know, from time to time. And it seems that, you know, Tam knows what his weaknesses are. And he's got people around him that that's their strengths. So if you've got coaches around you, and as a manager, it's not always about being on the grass, taking every session. If, if that's not, you know, what you're strong at. You know, if you're strong at something else, then find someone who's good on the grass. Or if you're good on the grass, but not very good at the man management side, or get an assistant or a coach who's good at the man management side, because that's a sign of a good manager. Realising what your weaknesses are and getting others to strengthen those positions. So for me to see Tam doing what he's doing is fantastic. Um, you know, as I said, you know, you want to aspire to be like, like him, a young coach coming through. Um, but, you know, I think you look in the Scottish Premier League, there's quite a few that have gone on kind of the Scottish FA uh, coaching courses and, and are now doing well sitting in uh, higher regions of the of the league. Looking back at your playing career, then touching on the, the coaching badges you've now been doing and the coaches you've been doing, what is the biggest change that you've noticed from coaching from when you were a player breaking through, when you beat at Bournemouth, went to Burnley, to now what you're being taught and how you're coaching? Um, I think there's a, the culture is different. So the players are different. You know, a young Marvin Bartley, you could go through me and you could shout and scream at me and I would react in the right way because one, I was always given 100%, but maybe if I did drop a little bit off of that rather, I could step back up because you would give me that rollicking. I'd say, well, I'm going to go and prove him wrong. I think now society's changed. So you have to treat players slightly differently. You know, where I think it was like one cap kind of fits all back then, shout at everybody. You can't do that now. Because, you know, that you might have a Marvin Bartley in the dressing room who reacts to that, but you might have someone who doesn't react to that they, and not arm around them. Or that, you know, they need a visual explanation as to what's going on. Or they need a tactical explanation. Oh. Sorry, I, I just cut off there because my phone rang. Let me put on Do Not Disturb. Big Effie Ambrose giving me a call. He couldn't, he couldn't make it up. Um, no, what was I saying? Yeah, so players, players are different now. You know, the culture is different now. Um, so you have to you have to be aware of that. You have to evolve with the game. And I think some managers who maybe managed back then don't want to evolve with the game. They want to use the same things that they used there back then. And it doesn't work. You know, and that's why I think sometimes they do fail because players just can't take to it. What culture do you think you would have best suited if you could have started back 
where you started your career or starting as a young footballer now what is the culture and what do you think would be the biggest difference to you as a player breaking through yeah I think I think back then was I came through at the right time um, I wouldn't change anything about it I came through a non, non-league level where you know if we weren't winning games and getting an extra 20 quid you know the boys couldn't go and, and get an extra couple of beers in the bar so they were going through me making sure I was doing their running um, so yeah I, I think I came through at the right time listen I think as I said, I wouldn't say it's soft enough because that'd be disrespectful um, to players who are coming through now. But I think at the time I needed that little bit of edge. I needed that, you know, that manager maybe to go through and give me a bit of a rollicking. Don't get me wrong, I'd have probably been a better player now with all the stuff that you have got in terms of analysts, how important they are to the game, you know, how much coaches and managers can break stuff down and show you. Um, but no, I enjoyed the time I came through and, and I think it's given me life skills that I wouldn't have got if I came through now. And for anyone who who hasn't really spoken or heard anyone about your career progression, how did it? How are the levels going from non-league to a Bournemouth to a Burnley and stepping up through those divisions with different clubs and going on to different moves? What are the biggest challenges and what was? Where do you think you found your level best at, and where do you think you struggled at that yeah. you didn't quite get to the English Premier League level? Yeah, so I think coming from non-league to to Bournemouth, um, the biggest step there was just fitness. You know, my, my body would break down. I think anyone coming from part-time football to full-time football after four or five weeks and adrenaline kind of wears off, you know, I began to fatigue after a training session, which I was doing at the start, but I was never recovering. You know, the next day I was still feeling really stiff in the warm-up and then it gets to the game on a Saturday and I couldn't really move. And that was, I had to go and learn about my own body. You know, hydration wasn't a thing that was spoken about a lot back then. So I never used to drink that much. And I remember I spoke to Joe Roach, who's still at Bournemouth now, um, who who had worked in the army and he works with the youth team there now. And I said to him, Joe, I'm just keep cramping up. And he said to me, are you drinking water? And I was like, not really. Like, you know, I have a cup of tea or, you know, I have a, like a Ribena, but he's like, how much water are you drinking? I said, like, hardly any. So he said, right. Remember we had a game. He's like, right, make sure you drink a lot of water, you know, before the game. So I drank two litres of water on the way down from Reading to Bournemouth and we're warming up and my stomach, I could feel, you know, that water just going around everywhere. Like you drank it too soon to exercise. So I said, to, I said, Joe, like, I can feel a load of water in my stomach because it's normal. And he's like, how much water have you drank? I said, two litres. He said, when did you drink it? And I said, well, on my way down. So like about an hour ago. And he just put his hands on his head. And he, was just like, <laughs> he was like, Marv, come on. He said, basically, you need to be drinking that from Monday. So two litres Monday, at least two litres Tuesday. And a, a build up to Saturday, you know, not just Saturday before the game thinking, oh, there you go. It's like a car, put petrol in me and I'm ready to go. Um, so, yeah, that was that was the fitness thing was a, was a big difference for me from a uh, from non-league to Bournemouth. My biggest step up in terms of the, the style of football and the pace of it was definitely going from Bournemouth to the Championship with Burnley. You know, a team that just been relegated from the Premier League, looking to bounce straight back. Obviously, I'd followed Eddie Howe up from Bournemouth to Burnley, but I remember being in training and coming out and calling my brothers and saying, sometimes the ball's moving that fast, I can't even see it. It was, I didn't think I'd ever adjust. I was there when I was doing, we were doing the passing drills, the same sort of ones we did at Bournemouth where, you know, I was kind of dictating the tempo. I was now going and say I was doing it at 50 miles an hour. These boys are doing it at 200 miles an hour. And I was like, this player's basically shooting at me. Why is he hitting it so hard? But it's a crisp pass because when you get your, your touch becomes better, you know, and they want to break lines with their passes rather than just giving you a dolly one in. So that standard, you know, was a massive, massive jump for me. One I felt that I, I did adjust to, um, but I felt my time at Burnley, I remember coming into the team, never forget this. I came into the team, did really, really well after being patient played maybe seven, eight, nine games and they're talking about a new contract and one of the centre midfielders who was more experienced, was on more money than me, came in to training and was just disruptive. 
When I mean disruptive, I mean you're doing a passing job and he's just kicking the ball away. Or you're going to play in a small side of game and he's booting the ball away. There's sort of things that fans don't see. So I remember that, you know, someone higher up came to the manager and said, right, put this player back in. We've had his agent on the phone. He's not going to leave. He's on X amount of money. He's going to cause us a problem. Let's play him. When we get when we sell him, Mark comes back into the team. And being a young man, boisterous guy, I, I didn't like that. You know, my performance, I'd been patient. You know, then that player began to struggle and I came in from him and done well. So my reward is to stay in the team. Now, I don't care how much money you are, what career you've had. None of that means anything to me. We're both on a level playing field. And when I was performing and that happened to me, I kind of, it angered me. You know, I knew it wasn't coming from the manager, but it angered me. And I think I took my off the boil a little bit. Um, and that's something that, you know, I have to admit, I'm not proud to admit it. For the first time probably, and the only time during my career playing or coaching, I came off the boil and I said, you know what, well, forget about it. And then kind of, you know, the manager changed and Sean Dyche came in. He was fantastic to me at the start. He'd actually wanted to sign me at his previous club, Watford. And, you know, I was off the boil. I, I wasn't really trying. This player was playing ahead of me and I didn't really care. And then I remember one day I came back from injury and then suddenly, you know, Sean Dyche put me back in the team. I think it was a Tuesday game and he told me on a Monday, you're playing against Barnsley away. i never forget it. And those six, seven weeks prior to that where I'd been off the boil, not really training, you know, not doing the extra because I wasn't starting games. I went in and, and I remember in the warm against Barnes, I felt awful. You know, I felt like I was cramping up. I think there's a lot of nervous energy. My body wasn't in the shape it should have been. And I played that game and I was absolutely horrific. I remember after 15 or 20 minutes just thinking, please just take me off. Please just take me off. And that's how I felt. And, you know, got to half time and rightly so, the manager dragged me. And for me, I think that was kind of the beginning of the end. And I'd let myself down. That wasn't down to Sean Dyche. That wasn't down to Eddie Howe. That wasn't down to, you know, the people who had said, play this player ahead of Marv. That was down to Marvin Bartley. There's no excuses. You know, I was there and I was in a privileged position and I took my off the boil and it cost me. So I say to every young player now, when you're out of the team, you're not, you know, you can sulk around, but that's not costing anyone but yourself. Because the manager doesn't care because he'll, he'll bring you in, you won't perform. And then the fans are like, oh, they forget about the eight, nine games you played really well. Yeah. You know, you've missed a few now. You came back in and you've been terrible. That's all they remember. You're only as good as your last game. So it's it's so important that you keep your mind on the game. You keep working as hard as you possibly can in training and do extras. So we're discussing that like almost like eight, nine years later. At what point in your career did you realise that that was something you had done negatively? Was it right away? Was it when you found a new home at Leighton Orient or Hibs? When was it that you realised that that was something that you had done incorrectly that had hindered you a little bit? At the Barnsley game. I knew straight away. Right. You know, I'm my own worst critic when it comes to football or, or learning about anything, studying anything. I knew straight away. Nobody needed to tell me anything. I knew the reason why that had happened out there. I knew the reason why I was struggling in the warm-up. That nervous energy was knowing that I wasn't prepared to go and play in the game at this level. So I, I knew straight away and, and I would never, ever let something like that happen to me again. Obviously, my playing days are coming to an end now, but in a coaching or managing or assistant manager capacity, never again will I take my eye off the board. How do you manage then reframe that and recapture and go back to the point where you do then move to Leighton Orient and then later Hibs where, where the honours start to roll in and you start to pick up medals and you start to get more successful as you're going forward? Yeah, because I, have to, I had to remember how it felt getting up at six o'clock in the morning and going and fitting double glazing or fitting conservatories and, and, or putting double doors on. I take myself back to them because, yeah, I've gone to Burnley, you know, for, for a large sum of money for a you know, a player who came for the route I had. Yeah, I was on a lot of money, you know, wage-wise. I said to myself, how dare you have disrespected everything you've worked so hard for? And that was an honest conversation I had with myself. How dare you do this? You've done this to yourself. Because you think you've made it because you, you're on a half-decent contract now. 
You know, think about how it was waking up at six o'clock in the morning. And I used to say to myself, I'll give anything to be a professional footballer now. Even for the same age I was earning, then I'll give anything to be it. And I took my eye off the ball and I was so disappointed in myself. So, you know, that's what I said from that day on, you know, whatever you do, you do to 100%. Always do things to the best of your ability. Sometimes things will happen in life when you go to training, you may be a bit tired or whatever else, but be the best tired version of yourself you can be. And you know, that's something that I've lived with for the rest of my life. And that's kind of my motto going forward. You moved up to Scotland, joined Hibs um, in, in a very important year that became for the club. Mm-hmm. What was it about Hibs in Scotland that made you move up here? Yeah, I, I remember speaking to Graham Matthew. I struggled uh, the two years at Leighton Orient, or two and a bit years. We, we had a takeover. Um, you know, we had a new Italian owner came in who put a lot of money into the club. Um, if I'm honest, looking back now, it was kind of a manager's dream to have, you know, unlimited funds, so to speak. And and we failed him, you know, um, talk about culture a lot now in football. The culture was extremely wrong there. You know, he brought a lot of players in on, on, on big money. Uh, we were paid handsomely for the league we were in and we got relegated because we just wasn't prepared to do the hard yards. You know, it was everybody's cup final. They were up for the games and we really weren't. And I remember coming out of those, you know, that, that time at Leighton Orient and saying, do I even want to play this game anymore? I was so disheartened with football, so disheartened with kind of what I did to end my Burnley career with that Barnsley game. So disheartened with, you know, how we'd kind of been treated at times at Leighton Orient. I said, is, is it worth it? Is it worth doing this? And this is a, a young boy who's loved football from the age of probably 11 years of old you know I know a lot of people was prior to that I hated it before that but since being 11 I loved the game so Graham Matthews spoke to me a few times we got things sorted out I ended up flying up with my brother Mark um, looked around the training ground and the stadium magnificent you know better facilities than I had at, at Burnley who you know a team that had been in the Premier League a year before me signing there and it just you know whetted my appetite again you know it was a challenge a challenge I looked forward to and you know came up and it was absolutely a fantastic time there you know like I said winning the Scottish Cup etc. What was that that Scottish Cup day like? And I know you were on the bench that day. Um, a few midfielders that I don't know what happened to their careers. Say John McGinn was ahead of you. Yeah, yeah. Liam, Liam Henderson. Is yeah. there any animosity? Do you do you how how do you feel then of the reflection of the way you were at Burnley? Mm-hmm. Are you then able to sit on the bench in a cup final and be the supportive, level-headed person that you then wanted to be? Yeah, that was that was another challenge in my career because you know doing shape leading up to that game, I was I was starting. Um, it was only on the day that. You know, I saw the manager talking to somebody else who ended up, you know, playing in the game um, in my position. And one thing that I, I didn't didn't like about that, you know, I thought I was a, a respectable character around the ground. You know, I was always honest and, and open. And I, and I felt the manager could have came to me and just explained this and you're not going to start today. This is the reason why. That's it. Let's go and win the game. Fine. You know, I'd have been disappointed on the coach. Got to the stadium. I'd have been my normal self. When the team was read out, there was I was angry. Uh, I was disappointed. I felt disrespected. Um, and I had to take myself away to the bathroom, you know, and then say to myself, listen, like, have your m- more minute of being angry. Go back out there and support your teammates. At the end of the day, you know, it was almost like a family there, you know, you respect them massively. Although it was, you know, my first season at the club, I knew it was something special that we had. Um, and, I, and I did that. And yeah, it was it was easy to be on the bench, you know, to see David Gray score at the end. It was magnificent because I know I'd played my part up until being there. And if I was needed in the final, then I was ready to go on. You know, it wasn't another situation when being at Burnley and I was like, I'm going to sack this off. I don't care about it. You know, I was there ready to play if I needed to. I didn't get on the pitch, but we won the game and that was the most important thing. Is that then lessons that you can take 
confidently into your coaching then is that you didn't like that you now know how you would address someone that had been involved in the shaping and the build-up and the analysis of the game if you then changed your mind and were clearly going to take someone out like I guess Livingston in the, the cup final last year that you yeah. would then be able to t- chat to them as you would want to have been chatted to and then hopefully make you a better man manager better coach going forward 100% I think you learn a lot more in football um, or, or in any industry from kind of the bad things that happen than the good things you know, we all know how we want things to pan out perfectly. You know, if we want to be a perfect manager or a perfect coach, we know how that session will go. We know how the match will go, you know, building up to matches, whatever else, we know how it will go. But it's when the bad things happen, when the speed humps come along, you know, how do you deal with those sorts of things? And I think, you know, as a manager, you earn your money to deal with those situations, the difficult situations, the conversations you don't want to have. You know, how best do you articulate yourself in those conversations um, so yeah, I, I definitely know how I deal with that now. Would the player like it? Maybe not, because nobody wants to be dropped, whether it's for a cup final or a preseason friendly. I want to play in every single game, but you know you have to have this conversation because you only play eleven people. Explain it to them. This is why I'm going with them. I might be right. I might be wrong. I'm the manager. This is what I'm deciding to do. I just need you on the size. If I need you to go on, then you know I need you to be ready, and then that's it. And then off the back, I guess of that, of learning from the the stuff you didn't like and the, the bad things that have happened to your career. Is there anything that stands out massively as being a really good characteristic that you've seen someone portray that you've went, yep, I'm definitely stealing that and that'll be something I'm taking into my man management style? Yeah, um, many managers. Um, Eddie Howe, Sean Dyche, uh, Paul Heckenbottom. Um, you know, I thought Paul Heckenbottom was, I don't think you mind me saying this, I thought he was a fantastic coach. On the grass, the closest thing I've seen to Eddie Howe. Um, you know, I really thought he was brilliant. He'd break the game down really, really well. He'd have a game plan, you know, try and execute it. And I've spoken to Paul since, you know, him leaving the club and I stay in contact with him now. And I think, you know, his biggest downfall and the lesson that that I, I knew was, I didn't know it was going to happen because that sounds, you know, like I know everything, but I thought it would happen. The turnover was too quick. Yep. You know, there was too many players that came up from England um, and too many kind of big characters. I'm not saying that because I was a character that left as well, that left in that short period of time. I think if he could have done that kind of that changeover over maybe two or three transfer windows, it would have worked a lot, lot better. But I think when you're trying to create a culture, you come into a club that has a really good culture and you speak about it and you take eight, nine, ten people out of that and you bring eight, nine, ten into that, it can change very, very quickly. Because two players coming in can kind of try and change it, but ten can change it. And I think, you know, that's that's probably the the only downfall that Paul Heckenbottom had. And I think if you ever spoke to him about his time there, I think he would agree with me. Well, he better agree anyway. <laughs> Um, so you're sitting your license now you've already talked about your admiration to go on and do the pro license what is the the future within the the football coaching role that you see yourself if everything was to work out is is the plan to be uh, to be stepping out at some point and being a number one yeah yeah you know that's always been my plan Um, no doubt about it you know I've been somebody who always wants to kind of control you know my own destiny that's why I came to Livingston when I did when the contract offer was on the table because it allowed me to be player reserve coach then the next step was be reserve manager and then hopefully to get involved in the first team setup and you know which has happened i'm assistant manager um so did i know it was gonna happen as quickly as it has no um but was i ready for it yeah 100 you know as i said you know i've got kind of a vision board and where i want to go and how i want to do things i'm constantly learning and watching things um so yeah i want to go and be the, my own man one day 
Um, but, you know, whilst I'm assistant to the gaffer, I'll do the best I possibly can as an assistant manager. And I'm learning each day, you know, whatever it might be about, whether it's on the field, off the field, every single day at Livingston's a learning day for me. And, you know, I have to be a sponge to my environment. How important is the, the punditry, I guess, as well, buying into that? If, you, if you're around people like McFadden, Neil McCann, when you're doing sports scene and breaking down games, how important is that having an impact even more on your analysis side when you're listening to people like them? Yeah, well, you know, I, I kind of wrote down games before even doing that. The, the biggest thing for me in the media, yes, you're learning from, let's say, James McFadden, Neil McCann, great people who have played at a great level. Um, but it's about going outside of my comfort zone. You know, I, I was never, ever comfortable with, you know, going out and, doing media work I never thought that's something that I wanted to do um but I'm all about going outside of my comfort zone because I think it makes me a better person a better all-round person um, and it'll make me a better manager in the long run so you know doing it is very nerve-wracking for me because you know, playing a game of football in front of say 40 50,000 whatever you know I, I could do that no problem would I be nervous no but going and you know doing the media work with only three or four of you actually in the studio but you know it's being shown on people's tvs you know every single time I'm nervous doing it and as I said, it makes me a better all-round person. And one day, everything's leading back to being a manager. Everything I do in the media, every, every podcast I do, every time I speak about football, it's all leading back to being a manager. And every little bit will help in different ways. And that's why, you know, now I've started to try and tap into other industries and speak to, you know, boxing coaches. Um, I spoke to somebody who, who runs a, a multi-million pound business. So I want to go and shadow them. I want to see how they deal with people within their industries. Because can I learn something? Hopefully, if I don't know anything, it's, you know, you've wasted a week of your time. What's a week? You know, it's, it's nothing. But if I can learn something or just one thing from that week of shadowing somebody in a different industry, then fantastic. It'll make me a better manager. And, you know, I want to go to the top of the game. So I think I have to have all these kind of uh, strings to my bow. And I guess another string to that bow, and we'll move on to this. I know it's, it's probably a very important subject that needs to be brought up. And I know you've probably been brought up every interview you've done for the last year and a half. Um, in March, you were appointed the Equality and Diversity Advisory Board. How has that role developed since it started last March for you? And what are the key things that you're trying to improve? I know you mentioned three of them in the, the Sky Sports interview with James Tavernier. What yeah. is the, the update on those and how those are developing and what you're trying to get out of that? Yeah, well, you know, as you said, you know, when speaking to James, I, I kind of spoke about them. Um, we're, we're trying to change the game. You know, we're trying to make it uh, an equal playing field. Equality is, is a key thing for, for absolutely everybody. Um, we want to take discrimination out of the game. And that's all forms of discrimination. You know, we've got a huge problem up here with um, sectarianism, um, something that I wasn't aware of, you know, when being down in England. Then coming up, I've learned more and more about it. And I've had to take myself away and educate myself on it, by the way, you know, because I, I didn't I didn't really know about it. So I've done a lot of reading, you know, I've watched a lot of videos, um, done a lot of research, spoke to players that I won't name within the game, you know, because I need to learn about it. I need to learn how that feels to be discriminated against in that way. Yes, I know how it feels to be discriminated against when it comes to, you know, someone racially abusing me. But I need to have the same energy for sectarianism because that's the elephant in the room at this moment in time. And we need to address it. And, you know, and I know going out and me trying to address these things, people are going to come for me, but I don't care. Because if I can make it better for the, you know, the next generation, and that's my job done. Um, so in terms of the Scottish FA, that's, that's something that, I, you know, constantly... I'm saying, how do we improve this? How do we improve this? How do we improve this? And, you know, as I say, you won't make an omelet about cracking a few eggs, um, but it, it, we need to improve it. And only us as people can improve that. You know, only us as people. I've, I've, I've spoken to people within Scotland who have said certain things. And I said, why do you say that? Do you not actually know what it means? And they say, no. So, you know, I heard my uncle say it or my granddad used to say it. And that's what we need to kind of cut that rope there and say, well, don't just say it because they said it because it's so wrong. 
it's so hurtful what you're saying. And um, a lot of people don't understand it. You know, a lot more people understand, you know, when it comes to racism, they know right from wrong or what they see as right from wrong. But they don't understand the effects that sectarianism has on people. They don't, they really don't get it. And it's, it's heartbreaking because I've spoken to people again who, who've been in tears telling me about their experiences and it really is heartbreaking. Um, and that's something that, you know, we're, we're going to try and address. And as I said, you know, I'll, I'll tackle it with every bit of energy I have. How, how are the SFA dragging that forward and pushing that forward then? Well, what is it? What is actual action? Like, I, I really liked one of the things that you had mentioned, and I'm sure anyone that's been on Twitter will have seen it. It was the, I think it was a tech security thing you talked about, being able to yeah. actually contact people in the light of day because it's painful um, when you hear any sectarian or racism issues brought up, when people tweet about it after the match, and it's always the first response is the same all the time. Where did you sit? Where do you sit? Because people yeah. almost want to disprove it. And yeah. the idea around your tech security was that people would be able to contact someone there and then, yeah. and then could proactively point out what happened, where it happened. How yeah. How has that been looked at, and how is it possible to implement that? Because it seems like it's something that would be a quick win and easy to do. Yeah. But yeah. I guess funding is going to be an issue to do it. It will be. It will be a slight issue to funding, but I don't think it'll be as expensive as people expect it to be. Um, as Again, that's something that I raised and an idea I raised with the Scottish FA back in March. And it's something that I hope will be brought in for the start of next season. Um, when teams go for licensing, you must have this. Because all it has to be, you know, it, it can be it can be one telephone. It can be one telephone that somebody has within that stadium. And if you hear something, if I hear something, we message and say, I'm sitting in, you know, row R and seat 26, person two rows behind me, I think roughly wearing a black top, you know, with white trousers and, and a blue baseball cap, not a fashion icon, obviously this guy, you know, it's saying, etc. And they can zoom in every ground within a Premier League has CCTV that you wouldn't believe. The images are HD images. They're unbelievable. So, you know, if we can get that introduced, I think it will, like you said, it's a quick fix. Um, people feel safe doing it, you know, if it's my mum or your mum at a game and they have some, somebody saying something about us, we don't want them, you know, going to a steward and pointing the person out because then they might have to leave the game because, you know, they might be confronted, you know, especially if it's a, a bigger group doing something. Yep. So, you know, the text messaging takes all that out of it because everyone's always got their phones out, whether they're recording the game or they're messaging what they want for tea. You know, people have always got their phones out because you never know that, what they're doing. Um, so I think that's a quick fix. You know, something, as I said, I, I brought up to the FSA, SFA, rather, Scottish FA in March, and all I'm here is to give ideas. You know, what they do at Nexus is entirely down to them. But, yeah, I'm in total agreement with you that, yeah, I think it would help. And I, I think it's very important that a caveat that you said there is because I, I'm a grown man. And if it was me and a couple of pals and there was a larger group, yeah, I wouldn't bring it up. There's this, there's this yeah. mentality that because I would be a 30-something-year-old man, I should be able to turn around and go, no, stop that. But that's not yeah. always people's... That's exactly. not People don't confront things that are simpler than that in life. Yeah. And you're maybe not going to be brave enough to confront four or five people on a racist or sectarian comment. Yeah. But you would be comfortable more. I mean, people are clearly comfortable doing it to Twitter yeah. after the fact. So there should be something in there. One of the things I was thinking about, it, do you think it's getting worse or do you think now people are more willing to raise it, but maybe just don't have the channel to raise it? Because it feels like there's been more and more racial instances that's been reported mm -hmm. by fans from at stadiums. I think there's been five in the last six or seven weeks in Scottish football. Yeah. Is it just that people are now more willing to actually step up and do their part and help out? Yeah, I think it's a bit of both. Um, I, I definitely think it's getting worse. And the reason I think it's got worse is social media. Right. I think, you know, we've gone through the last 18 months or two years with social media, people writing exactly, you know, anything that they want without being held accountable. 
And, you know, without probably realizing that, you know, people see that on social media, you can write what you want, you can discriminate against somebody, nothing happens to them. Oh, actually, I might as well just say it now. And you try and take it one step further. So when you're a little kid, you always try and push your parents. See how far I can push mum. See how far, and you always knew you could push your mum a little bit further than you could your dad. Get away with a little bit more of your mum than you would your dad. So, you know, again, even though we're adults, people see stuff on social media. Oh, that person's getting away with saying that. Oh, I'm going to say that to a rival player. And sometimes people will racially abuse somebody on the opposite team and have three black guys on their team and then they score and they're cheering. It just yeah. doesn't make any sense, but it is getting worse in answer to your question because of social media. Because they didn't nip it in the bud at the start, now we have this huge problem in society. You know, it's spreading. Um, so, no, it's, it's fantastic that people do call out on Twitter. I'm in total agreement with you. It's not always safe to say something to somebody who, who you know, discriminate against somebody else. And if you don't feel safe in doing so, then I would always say don't do it. And I think the social media thing is really important. One of the things that I think a lot of people have noticed is if you now tweet, um, any tweet, no matter how pleasant, no matter what the context is, if you tweet the word cunt, mm-hmm. you will get an instant warning on Twitter that that is not yep. an acceptable word to use. Yep. If you tweet anything about a COVID vaccine, you get a stamp to say this is not NHS approved. Do you think it would just be a very simple change to just take certain words? And I heard James Tavernier talk about this. The monkey emoji, banana yep. emoji, just remove them. I don't think there'd be anyone that would be really upset that if you remove yep. the ability to have a banana or monkey emoji on their phone to text yep. and just make it really simple because James Tavernier did say that was the one thing he notices right away is yep. that image. And it's like, it seems like a simple fix to have an AI that says, sorry, you can't have these emojis anymore because what are you using them for? And what and what scenarios are you actually using those emojis where it's going yep. to be a positive interaction? Because it's probably zero. Yeah, exactly. But the harsh reality is they don't want to change it. They don't want to fix it. I've spoken to social media companies a few times and they've got a lot more people there than, than we have. Me and you here coming up with ideas. They're a lot cleverer than me, definitely. They're paying a lot more money than me. And I had a simple fix for them when it came to social media. You know, on my Twitter, for example, I have a blue tick because I'm a so-called celebrity, someone in the public eye. Offer everybody else on social media who doesn't have a blue tick the opportunity to verify their account. Now they can either give it a green tick or they don't do anything with it. But then say to me, Marvin Bartley, one of the options on your account is people who haven't verified could not interact with you. So you give me the option. Yeah, they can still go on my Instagram, for example. Yeah, they can still look at my pictures. Yeah, they can still like my pictures, but they can't comment on them. And they can't message me. Also, they can still go around social media with you know the freedom that they have now. They don't Even if you're verified, you don't have to put a picture up. You don't have to do anything different. I don't even have to know that you're verified other than that you can comment on my stuff. And then all that does is it holds you accountable. Should you racially abuse me? Should you, you know, do something discriminative to anybody on social media? They can say, report this. They can find out where it's came from because you had to verify your account. And that's it. Should I say, you know what? Um, it's open for everybody. Verified, non-verified. And a non-verified person does something to me the same way I report it, but they might not be able to find them the same way they do now. It doesn't change anything. It shouldn't change anything, but it makes it safer for me. It's all about the customer, they say. It's all about, you know, your interaction on social media. It's all about your experience on social media. Come on, they're lying. They're lying. That is something that will fix it in 24 hours. Yeah, yeah, it did feel like that. I remember, I remember a social media company, I can't remember if it was Twitter or Instagram, and they turned around and said that it would be unfair to people in countries who don't have ID verification, but it is also a private platform and which should be managed for the, the users that are on it. Anyone who listened to that Sky Sports interview with James Tavernier and yourself, um, you spoke about the Livingston Rangers opening day, taking the knee. I think after everything that happened with England at the Euros, um, Kamara, Roof, everything that built up in Scottish football, 
it had stopped for a while and then it came back. In the English Premier League, I feel like there's no no ambiguity. It's very clear on what the, the FA's role is, what the EPL's role is, and how all the club captains, Ben Mee is one of the ones that I keep hearing yeah. speaking out. They're very clear on everyone is buying into this. And obviously the freedom of players to make their own decision whilst the knee's happening is there. I know Wilfred Zaha and Benteke, certain players have chosen yeah. not to. Is there a bit of miscommunication within Scottish football, do you think? Because there are some clubs doing it and some clubs not doing it. And unless I've missed it, I don't feel like I've seen a clear stance from the SPFL and the SFA on what everyone's unified decision is on this. It doesn't mean that players have to take the knee. Yeah. But it should be from clubs that they all say, we support it, we buy in. Because I just felt, I'm not one to nitpick, but I felt like the Dundee derby wasn't a, it wasn't a great look in the first 60 seconds. Yeah. When there was one club taking the knee, one club not taking the knee for no real reason from the exact same city playing on the exact same street. Yeah, yeah. So for me, I'm, I was a great advocate at the start and I still am in terms of players taking the knee. Why? Because it sparks a discussion. It was never going to eradicate racism or discriminative messages or sayings or whatever on, on the first day of doing it and it won't do it on the last day. But it's just about conversation. So to give you an example, one of me and my teammates always took the knee when we first started doing it in Scotland, his son was watching the game. He said to his dad, why are you taking the knee? He said, because Marvin's treated differently to me. And he's like, oh, is that because Marvin, you know, always fouls and always gets booked? That's all he saw. That's all he, he thought of. Or because he doesn't score goals. And he's like, no, 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 because the colour of his skin. He's like, what do you mean? So that showed you that children aren't born racist. You know, this problem is something that you, you learn from others or something that you want, you want to develop. So he's like, no, he explained it to him. He broke it down. His kid didn't understand. And he said he just ran off and started playing again, you know, because he just thought, oh, it's marvellous. You know, it is what it is. So that, that, that's the point for me. Taking the, you know, to start, it's an educational thing. You know, this is the reason we're doing it. When stuff was happening on social media and then players are taking the knee and social media companies aren't backing us up, then the problems began. Because, yes, we can only do so much in football. Why football has been chosen or the pressure has been put on sport to fix a societal problem makes no sense to me. The governing bodies within football, so when stuff's happening, like we've been chanting and stuff in UEFA, when they're coming down with these fines or these sanctions or banning teams from you know having supporters in, then letting 10,000 in, these things aren't helping. Because you're almost celebrating the fact that, oh, why are we, you know, young children, why are we allowed to go to this game? Oh, because, you know, the rest of the fans aren't allowed to go. Why are they not allowed to go? Oh, because, you know, last time Glenn Kamar got racially abused, you know, or, oh, sorry, by a player, or they racially abused another team, didn't they? The fans were doing yeah. something um, in a European game. That's why we're not allowed to go. So instantly the kids put the two together. Okay, so the fans aren't allowed to go in because they racially abused somebody, but we're allowed to go in. So if they do that again, we'll be allowed to go in again. So almost you begin to celebrate. It's almost like, oh, that's perfect. You know, this has happened. Now we can go in. UEFA have, have let football down massively because what should have happened if they wanted to do that, and it's a great idea to let children in, serve your two-game suspension or whatever it was, and on the third game, then the first 10,000 people who are allowed in are children. Yep. That's fine. But don't give them a stadium ban and then let that happen. And then people are saying, oh, messaging me, oh, they didn't find anything racial when the 10,000 were in there accompanied by adults. Well, you, you aim for a judge and jury, you know, and, and they're also the person up for prosecution. So how are they going to find themselves guilty of doing something? Oh, yeah, actually, we were in the wrong. That's not going to happen. So, yeah, we need we need help. You know, sport can only do a certain amount. Society can only do a certain amount. So social media needs to be relegated. That comes from, you know, I know they brought in Ofcom to do it. That comes from the government. The government has said nothing about all these things, by the way. If, if professional football clubs stop paying their taxes, 
I bet you start to see a lot more on TV. I bet you see government saying a lot, lot more. You even saw that in England when the Super League was going to happen. Emergency meetings. Let's, until it begins to hit people in the pocket, nobody cares. And this is why now I'm an advocate of players walking off the pitch. If you hear anything from the fans, walk off the pitch, wherever you're playing in the world. You know, walk off the pitch. Why? Because then it stops the game. If you tune in, if you pay £80 a month, you know, to your, your broadcaster to have a sports channel and, you know, every other week or every time this team plays and they race be someone, someone's walking off saying, I'm not paying for that anymore. Sponsors are no longer sponsoring it. Why am I going to pay to sponsor a game that might be finished after 15 minutes? You're not going to put your, your company's name on the front of their jerseys because every time it's a negative thing because your fans are doing this. Start holding people accountable. When it starts to hit them in the pockets and players start walking off the pitch, you start seeing governing bodies do more because it will hit them financially because their product's not worth as much money. You see governments start doing things because the taxes that the, you know, the governing bodies are paying isn't as much. And everything begins to change. Everything's to do with finances. And until we can somehow channel this into finances and hit them in the pocket, not a lot's going to change. How how would you think that would just on that final point? How do you think that would be constructed that players would walk off? Would that be a decision that should be taken by the referee if the claim's been taken seriously? I was watching, um, I was watching the BBC documentary. It was the the rise of the Premier League fever pitch, and and something that had been totally foreign to me was that the kick out campaign was actually started off the back of a white Eric Cantona being yep. racially abused for being French, and yep. that was really what kicked it off. And there was uh, Les Ferdinand was saying that this was laughable because everything that they had went through for decades and complaining to FAs and their, their writers and it just nothing happened and it was it had to be a white European that got yeah. racially abused and reacted to a fan in the crowd in a way that I think fans don't seem to think could happen like these fans yeah. that are racially abusing people you just need to catch the wrong person or the even maybe even the right person on, yeah. on the wrong day yeah. and you might learn. Yeah, what, what you're actually doing? How well, how how would the referee not then manage this situation well, in an ideal well, world? Yeah, at Livingston, we, we've got. If, if we hear any forms of you know discriminative stuff coming from supporters, we walk off the pitch. That that's it. You now, when this happened, I was captain of the football club. I went in, we had a vote, hundred percent. We walk off the pitch. So that was it. So I don't need the referee. If I'm you know heaven forbid at a game and I hear something. I don't need the referee to tell me I'm able to walk off the pitch. Yeah. I don't need the fourth official to tell me I'm able to walk off. We walk off the pitch. That is it. The game is finished. You know, if there's a fine to be paid, then we'll deal with that at a later date. And then that will show you a lot. Because the fine will probably be more for walking off the pitch than it will for the culprits of saying, you know, what they've said. So, you know, respect the referees 100%, but take it out of their hands. Yeah, we'll say the reason we'll go some, the reason we walk off the pitch is this. It won't be a discussion, you know, what about staying and we'll put something out of the tannoy. No, no, no hear it once um, and we've gone off the pitch. That is it. Um, and I think each club's obviously probably had their own meetings, but I would expect any club that are on the pitch when I go to their captain and say, we're walking off for this reason that they come with us. Um, I think we have to stay united on this. Uh, I believe we would. Um, so yeah, that, that's it. That, that's the protocol. There's no, I know they brought in something that's like a three step, three steps. What do you mean? To be basically three times before I walk off the pitch? Yeah. No, once enough, mate. And like you said, one day somebody's going to react because yep. when I saw the video of somebody racially abusing me and video recording it and I heard it back, how I would have reacted if I was warming up and I heard somebody in the first row say that to me, I have no idea. You know, and, and then that, that that's that's a terrible thing because then it puts everybody else in danger. But I'm telling you now, when it comes to being abused about your football ability, your form, anything else, it hurts, but you brush it off. When it comes to being about your skin colour, that's a pain and an anger and, you know, an upset I can never, ever explain. I couldn't put it into words.
And I spoke to I spoke to Callum from Levy Talks just before that Rangers and uh, Rangers Livingston game, and I think we both said the same thing: is that um, nobody else's we as, as white people should be supporting and be supportive, but that's our only role. We we, we yeah. never, even if you spent all day and we done a four hour yeah. interview, I would never understand. Yeah, as what as you go through, and I think it is just a being supportive. And if people do hear stuff, if if there is the right channels, if there isn't the right channels, people need to start raising it um, as quickly yeah. as possible and getting these people. Not not just year bands. I don't understand why that's been what's been put out to some people. It's you, you get yeah. one. Some some things are a luxury. You get one opportunity to do, and if you yeah. let yourself down, and you're of an age whereby you should know better. Yeah, like you said, children children aren't born racist, but maybe they'll say yeah. the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. They don't understand. But I think it's a really important conversation. I've really enjoyed talking about your coaching. Um, I'm really excited to see what what ends up with Livingston end of the season and where you where you end up going over the next three, four, five years. Marvin, thanks very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. No, thanks for having me, mate. I appreciate it, pal. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider becoming a Patreon for The Fourth Official. Patreon.com forward slash The Fourth Official. For as little as $2.99 a month, you can get early access to podcasts like this from the world of football, in-depth articles, and much, much more. That's Patreon.com forward slash The Fourth Official. <laughs>